This is Chris Masterjohn, and you're listening to episode 17 of The Daily Lipid. This is The Daily Lipid Podcast with Chris Masterjohn. Health and nutrition news you can use on the daily. Are are, are you ready? All right, the episode that you're about to listen to is the third of my Facebook Live broadcasts. This time, it was a Q&A session that was all about methylation. That's nutrients like vitamin B12, folate, choline, and much more. Before we get into that, a few announcements. As a reminder, this podcast is now housed along with my blog at chrismasterjohnphd.com. If you go to that website, you can click on blog for the blog, click on podcast for the podcast, or simply type in the URL chrismasterjohnphd.com slash blog for the blog and slash podcast for the podcast. But there's also a cool little tool, the dailylipid.com slash the episode number will redirect you to the show notes for a specific episode of this podcast. The dailylipid.com is not a website. It doesn't have any content. It is my 301 redirect playground, and you are invited to the fun. That means that since this is episode 17 of the Daily Lipid podcast, then if you just type in the dailylipid.com slash 17, that will redirect you to the podcast show notes for this episode. It's just a little toy. It's something that is meant to be easy to remember to help you get to what you want faster. Okay, so other announcements include... I caved in and got the subscription to Headspace. Meditation is an important part of my morning routine. I've upped my game from 10 minutes to 15 minutes. I will have more to say about that in the future. I will report on my experience, but I'll leave it at that for now. I told you that I was going to be consuming U.S. Wellness Meats Liverwurst for breakfast every morning, and I have started that, and I'm excited. I have always felt best when I combine liver and heart as the dominant source of meat in my diet. So usually, historically, I've eaten maybe a 3 to 1 ratio of heart to liver, maybe a 2 to 1 ratio depending on the day. And it's always made me feel much more energetic, much easier to go between meals while fasting. And the only way I've been able to replicate that with supplements is to take coenzyme form B vitamins, R-lipoic acid, acetyl-L-carnitine, and coenzyme Q10. That is a hefty, hefty price because you don't get any calories or protein from those supplements. So what I'm doing now is I'm eating six ounces of U.S. Wellness Meats liverwurst every every morning, and I'm really happy with the results in terms of actually getting to feel those benefits again. And not only that, but now I'm not just getting liver and heart, but I'm getting kidney in the mix, and it's so much easier. I know, I know, I know so well that I feel better when I eat this diversity of organ meats, and yet I it's always been so hard for me to keep up the habit because it's really difficult to prepare liver and heart and certainly kidneys and make it taste palatable and make it uh, something that you can sustain every day. So being able to get this pre-cooked frozen mixture of everything all ground up uh, and just you know unfreeze it the night before and cut off six ounces and just eat it 
like that really fits in with what I'm trying to do to make my breakfast really quick and easy so I can get into my productive workday right away if it's, uh, if, I, if it's not a rest day for me and uh, really has helped me get to feeling that level of energy and that level of easiness between meals again. If you want to check out the liverwurst yourself, you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash liverwurst. If you don't know how to spell that, liverwurst is like liver plus W-U-R-S-T. So that's chrismasterjohnphd.com slash L-I-V-E-R-W-U-R-S-T. All right. Those are the announcements. Let's talk about the show. In the show, what you can expect to find are answers to questions such as these. If you have an MTHFR mutation, even if you have normal homocysteine, you could still be taxing your supply not only of choline, but you could be wasting glycine and spilling it out into the urine. And you should consider creatine supplementation to reduce your demand for methylation, something usually only considered by bodybuilders and other people interested in athletic performance, but it could be helpful in that situation as well. We talk about how to use foods and supplements in these cases to help, whether we can use SAMe, a pretty expensive supplement, to help diagnose problems and get us into a position where we can use whole foods to treat issues, choline and fatty liver disease, why is my vitamin B12 levels in my blood through the roof even though I don't take supplements. COMT mutations, the balance between mental rigidity and mental flexibility, and the potential harms of methylfolate supplementation in people who are predisposed to greater methylation of dopamine in the brain. How to get choline if you aren't eating eggs. Should you take gelatin even if you're not eating a lot of muscle meat? And if you have elevated liver enzymes and an MTHFR mutation, should you reconsider your high-fat diet? All this and much more. So without further ado, here is the full episode. All right. I am live on Facebook for the third time. Uh, Many of you know who I am. For those of you who don't, my name is Chris Masterjohn. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. I'm currently Assistant Professor of Health and Nutrition Sciences at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm here to represent only my own views and not those of any institutions with which I'm affiliated. Also, I'm not a medical doctor. We will talk about health, but my uh, expertise is academic in nature, so I can provide a lot of insight into how the body works, uh, but I can't diagnose or treat anyone. You can ask about health conditions, but in any cases where I discuss them, Um, discussing it from an educational perspective in a way that you might be able to use information to in conjunction with a healthcare provider uh, in to help with um, that management but we're not actually managing it here so I'm not giving medical advice or practice Um, today we're going to talk about methylation and I'll give you a very 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 short introduction to that in a moment if you are watching this Saturday June 25th at around 2 p.m. You are watching it live. If you're watching it after the fact, uh, you're watching the recording. Either way, you can like or share the video if you want to promote it. I would love that so we can get more participation. You can also subscribe to uh, the videos. You always get a notification whenever I go live. 
Um, if you are here now, you have the special opportunity to be able to ask questions. This is a Q&A session, and so the questions that you ask will become the show. Um, and so let's just get right into it. So very, very briefly, um, methylation is a process whereby we add a carbon to something. It's involved in the synthesis of many compounds. It's involved in the regulation of many compounds. And so it hits all kinds of health endpoints. There's a lot of nutrients that are involved, most prominently vitamin B12, folate, and choline. But there's actually a lot of other nutrients. And that's it. That's my introduction. So I'm going to try to move on and uh, do what I can to answer questions. I do want to point out that I don't know everything about methylation. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I do. It's extremely complex. So I can't promise to ask, uh, answer every question perfectly. What I can promise to do is provide, do my best to provide whatever insight I've been able to glean from studying this topic. All right, let us move forward. Uh, Spencer Jensen says, will taking organic sulfur or MSM sourced from pine trees cause problems if you have trouble with methylation? Um, not that I know of, but I haven't studied that in particular. Um, so if you know of a particular reason, uh, hit me up and tell me about it, but I uh, don't know of one off the top of my head. Renee Culver says, my MTHFR 677T is double bad for me. In your first live Facebook, you said that there is a choline connection because if your body is not processing fully correctly, it relies on choline. Choline and choline-containing foods like liver and eggs give me a headache. I must be very deficient in choline since I avoid these foods, but I'm not sure how to proceed. I usually listen to my body and stay away from foods that give me a headache. Perhaps I should make some tiny liver pills and try to work up very slowly, or what insight can you give me on this? Uh, Renee, I would love to be able to give you uh, <laughs> the answer, but I, to be honest, um, based on that information, all I can do is guess. Uh, so, I mean, there one thing you would want to do, I think, is try to see if it's actually related to choline or if it's something to do with other components of choline-rich foods. So, for example, liver and egg yolks are very rich in choline, but they're also very rich in cholesterol. They're also very rich in biotin. They're also very rich in a, you know, each one of them is rich in many different things. Uh, so the first thing that I would do is, um, you know, pr providing that you stay away from doses that you know are really going to debilitate you, is just experiment and see if does a lecithin, uh, a, an animal-based lecithin like egg yolk lecithin, where it's mostly phosphatidylcholine, does that in its largely pure form give you the same result? And then if that's the case, I would just try a choline salt uh, either, well, you could try choline bitartrate or CDB choline or, or alpha GPC or something like that and see if the reaction is the same. Um, in particular, there's a form of choline called alpha GPC. Uh, if you could see it, if your response differs between that and lecithin, that might give you some insight into, uh, I mean, assuming that pure, any form of pure choline causes this problem, uh, trying alpha GPC and uh, lecithin and comparing them might give you some insight into the mechanism because uh, alpha GPC, if I recall correctly, is the, um, the, on the only form of choline that's clearly shown to increase um, acetylcholine production in the nervous system. Uh, and given that, you know, it's possible that there's something related to acetylcholine signaling that is causing your headache, uh, like, you know, regulation of uh, blood vessel constriction or something like that. 
And if that's the case, that would provide some initial insight. I don't know exactly what the practical impact would be, but you may find for some reason that phosphatidylcholine is the worst one, in which case uh, I don't even know what the explanation would begin to be, but it, that would, I, I think that would be a first step in trying to figure it out. Uh, but it's, you know, it's sort of like um, we're playing detective work here and guesswork with something that's not obvious. So if you are if you are able to provide me any more detail about experiences related to that, um, maybe I can further speculate. But hopefully that's enough to start you off on the right track in investigating. Thank you, Renee, for your question. Chris Hoffman says, I think two of the most talked about MTHFR mutations are 677T and 1298C. I am heterozygous for um, MT, uh, for 1298C. I was wondering if you knew much about these mutations and if you could give some translation and practical advice to people with them. All right. So uh, let me give, me give you some background here because I, I want to hopefully, you know, er everyone can understand what I'm saying here. And that requires a little bit of background. So uh, one of the principal roles of folate is to provide a methyl group to um, provide a methyl group to vitamin B12, which then provides a methyl group to homocysteine, which then regenerates methionine, which then acts as the principal methyl donor throughout the body. And in order to get the methyl group onto folate in the first place, it's derived from amino acid metabolism. So serine and glycine, but probably in total, it's probably the amino acid serine that is the principal source of those methyl groups. But they aren't just, it's not like there's just a methyl group that you take off of serine. You actually have to construct the methyl group in a, in a set of reactions. And there's basically two principal reactions. One is to take formate from uh, the mitochondria and rearrange it into the methyl group. And the other is to um, go about a, take it directly from serine in a, in a you, you first create a CH2 group, which is a methylene group, and then you add a hydrogen, uh, which makes it a CH3 group, which is a methyl group. And MTHFR is the is the end stage uh, enzyme. Regardless of which set of processes you're engaging in, MTHFR is the uh, the last enzyme involved in constructing that methyl group, regardless of whether it's taken from uh, from either of those pathways. And so if that enzyme works less effectively, then that means that, in theory, what should be happening, um, and of course, what actually happens is more complicated because all we're talking about here is a genetic predisposition. But if that enzyme is less effective, then what's going to happen is that you will be uh, you will be less able to use that pathway. And there are a few consequences that come from that. The most obvious one is that your homocysteine should elevate, and that's because you are not as efficiently recycling it. So there's a couple... Now, there are, there are a couple less obvious things that would come as a consequence. Uh, one is that um, because you are not producing methylated folate... Uh, ordinarily, um, ordinarily, when you have an excess amount of methyl groups coming into the cell, the amino acid glycine takes those methyl groups and acts as a buffer. And usually, high concentrations of methyl groups are associated with high concentrations of methylfolate. So it's actually high concentrations of... Um, excuse me, I, I have that backwards... 
usually when you have um, when you have an excess of methyl groups in the cell, there is feedback that tells MTHFR to stop making methylfolate, and it's that um, it's that feedback uh, inhibition that actually indirectly initiates using up glycine as a buffer. If you have a genetic polymorphism in MTHFR, then you have low concentrations of methylfolate when you're not supposed to have them. And so you have constant activation of that signal to use up glycine as a buffer, even when you don't have the ordinary situation in which that occurs is when you have too much methyl groups. So one of the consequences of having a less effective MTHFR that is generally neglected in most discussions that I've seen is that low concentrations of methylfolate due to genetic reasons will cause an inappropriate signal that's telling that's it's confusing the cell and making the cell think that there's plenty of methyl groups around and that is causing inappropriate uh, utilization of, of glycine to suck up methyl groups. So you wind up in a situation where that compounds not having enough methyl groups and it also wastes glycine. So when that happens, you're basically going to methylate glycine into metabolites that many of which are going to spill over into your urine. And then this, the other consequence that I think gets intermediate attention and also deserves more attention is that MTHFR is only two, is only one way that you can provide those methyl groups. There's an alternative pathway that relies on choline. So you basically, you can supply methyl groups through the MTHFR-mediated pathway that depends on folate and depends on vitamin B12. Or alternatively, you can supply methyl groups from choline. And if your MTHFR does not work as well, your body starts using up choline more. And if you and in that case you are taxing the choline supply so when you have a less effective mthfr you are not only having fewer methyl groups around but you are also wasting glycine and using up choline so there are a few strategies by which you can approach this that uh, each have their own strengths and limitations i mean the the first most basic one is make sure you eat more folate. So the um, MTHFR is basically recycling uh, your folate and helping you use one molecule over and over and over again. If you look at any of the studies, um, you know, the 1298C1 is maybe more serious, but um, clearly with the C67T1, uh, you, you're usually seeing effects primarily mediated by um, having that polymorphism plus a low intake of, of folate. And so if you have a greater compromise in this system, then throw, just throwing folate at it doesn't make much sense. But it does make sense to make sure that you're not eating a diet that's deficient in, choline, in folate. So I would say the three L's are liver, legumes, and leafy greens. Uh, for the average person, try to eat liver once a week. For legumes and leafy greens, I would say work them into your diet every day. If there's some reason you can't tolerate one of those foods, you can rely more on the other. But you know, eating a lot of those foods guarantees a lot of folate. Folate's very sensitive to cooking and to even frozen storage. So raw, fresh foods are best. Uh, but you know, it's not totally degraded. So if you are, if you're most 
Uh, according to the USDA database, most cooking is destroying 20 to 40% of the folate in a food. Uh, so, you know, it, like different food, you, you know, cooking the food is going to help you eat a lot more of it, right? So probably with green leaves, like I eat, I eat a ton of uh, salads with, with lots, I just rotate different types of greens. And so I'm probably eating, you know, like 10 or 15 or 20 large handfuls of raw leafy greens a day. Uh, but then I also work cooked leafy greens into, um, into uh, batch starches that include lentils. And so th those are pretty good sources of folate as well. Um, but that's like, that's number one strategy is just make sure your diet is not deficient in folate. Um, one potential strategy that you could use here is to supplement with uh, 5-methylfolate and and actually methylfolate is you know the two popular supplements are 5-methylfolate and folinic acid those are actually the two forms of folate that predominate in foods so don't think that you're getting anything special by paying big money for those supplements what you the only thing you're going to get out of that is a dose much higher than what you could get from food and if you have a genetic polymorphism it may make sense to supplement with 5-methylfolate makes more sense to do that than folinic acid because uh, folinic acid is is actually upstream from MTHFR, and so I wouldn't use that. I would use 5-methylfolate. Um, and one of the nice things about 5-methylfolate is that it will act as the signal to shut off the inappropriate glycine wasting. And so in that sense, it might be getting closer to the root of the problem than any of the other approaches. The drawback is that you're not really recreating the normal physiology because the normal physiology is that you take a small amount of folate and then you recycle it with methyl groups derived from your protein over and over and over again. Here, you are, you're inputting 5-methylfolate that you can't recycle and you're just blasting the system with far more folate than it would usually have in there. So you are. So I would say, you know, try that. Use that as a tool in your kit, but watch out to see it, what kind of results you get from it, because it's not a it's not a perfect replication of the normal physiology. Um, tool number two is pay more attention to getting glycine in your diet. Um, if you are wasting glycine, then try to replete that glycine. I would say for, for someone who doesn't have any problems, the you know normal historic glycine intake for humans means eating nose to tail. So it means, you know, half of your animal foods are collagenous animal foods. So I would say use a rich supply of bones and bone stocks, insect exoskeletons if you're into the exobars and, you know, all these potential sources of skin and bones to supply that glycine. If you're in a case where you have a severe issue with the MTHFR and maybe you have more predominant glycine wasting, then maybe what you should be doing is supplementing with one, two, or three tablespoons of gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen. Again, you're not replicating the normal physiology. The glycine wasting is persisting without the 5-methylfolate, um, you know, unless you're doing both of them together, and you're adding glycine to compensate. So you are, you're trying to get close to the root of the problem, but you're not, in no way are you, you know, if the problem is genetic, only gene therapy is the root of the problem, and I and I am not comfortable. Uh, rec I mean, I'm not comfortable even on the next ten year horizon of saying we should be treating this, anything with gene therapy. Actually, but uh, unless it's you know severe, this I don't think so. Anyway, um, and then the third potential strategy is uh, that you 
supply the choline, right? We know with the, even with the C677T polymorphism, which is actually really common, we know that if we take those people, it seems like we can uh, best protect the DNA and best protect those people from uh, poor liver function by giving them way more than the RDA for choline. And some of these studies go up to two grams of choline per day. So I would say those are the three, those are the, and so for 1298C, I, you know, maybe it, it's not going to be as effective, but, but these are the tools that are available, I think, with any decrease in MTHFR activity. So I would say, you know, start at the baseline of just securing these things in the diet with whole foods. But then look at things like, are you really affected by this? So is your, um, is your homocysteine elevated? Is your mean corpuscular volume on your complete blood count elevated? Do you have mood problems or anxiety problems or depression problems that could be related to methylation factors uh, regulating the neurotransmitters? Um, do you have problems uh, with body composition, particularly problems gaining lean mass or problems accumulating liver fat? That could mean that your choline supply is being taxed or your creatine uh, is not being synthesized well. Actually, strategy number four, I should have mentioned that I that I didn't get to. Forty-five. You know, the the other thing that you can do is try to reduce the demand for methylation in your body. And the simplest one thing that you can do to do that is to get a lot of creatine in your diet. Forty-five uh, percent of your methylation demand is to synthesize creatine. Whole body creatine synthesis on average is about a gram and a half of creatine per day. And you can get that amount of creatine by eating 12 ounces of meat of animal flesh per day. Now, in the studies that quantified that, I think they were looking at people who are already eating maybe close to that amount of meat. So that might mean that you're looking at a pound and a half of meat per day that you want to eat. There may be reasons that you don't want to eat that much meat, in which case supplementation with creatine may uh, make sense. In that case, I would start with a gram or a gram and a half of creatine. But there is at least one case study suggesting that someone with MTHFR mutation and really high homocysteine was able to cut the homocysteine in half using five grams of creatine per day. So I would I would put that in to, uh, tool number four in the kit. And I would say you really have to self-experiment with these things and see how they impact the parameters that you're trying to deal with uh, because it's not straightforward and obvious, like there's this mutation and therefore you should do these things. Um, how that mutation expresses itself is dependent on complex things going on in your body and each person is going to be a little bit different. So I hope that starts you out with some tools you can use, Chris. Thank you for your question. Mike Buchanan says, hey, Chris, just found out I carry an MTHFR gene mutation. Any suggestions on supplementation to prevent elevated homocysteine levels and other issues associated with MTHFR gene mutations? Well, I just answered that in the previous question. Um, since you're asking specifically about elevated homocysteine, I would just add that we dispose of homocysteine when it accumulates by converting it into cysteine, which can be used for glutathione synthesis. And that's a process that depends on serine, glycine, and vitamin B6. So you might want to look at your vitamin B6 status. The best, in this case, elevated homocysteine could be taken as a basis for trying vitamin B6. Um, the best marker of status would 
in my opinion, be erythrocyte transaminase activity, not to be confused with serum transaminase activity, which is a marker of liver or other tissue damage. And, um, and that would be low if you're low in B6. I think the best form to supplement with is paradoxal. The one thing I really don't like about paradoxal supplements is they come in ridiculous doses. Uh, my, pre- my preferred B vitamin supplement is coenzymate B by Source Naturals because the forms are better and the doses are more reasonable. Um, so again, the tools that I discussed earlier plus the B6 could be useful in trying to deal with elevated homocysteine. Deborah says, what's the cause of cancer? Uh, Deborah, thanks for your question. That's a little bit too open-ended for me to give a good answer to. I would say it's complicated because there's a lot of different types of cancer and they don't all have one uh, specific cause. There's probably, there's definitely different subsets of cancer that have different driving factors. There's some commonalities that are, that probably across you know, could be said of most cancers. So for example, DNA damage due to oxidative stress uh, and methylation deficiencies could be at the root of initiation of cancer, but environmental exposures to uh, carcinogens is certainly important. Uh, For certain subsets of cancers, the internal hormonal milieu, particularly with sex hormone responsive cancers is relevant. Once you have cancer, um, you know, once you have the initiation of cancerous lesions, you have a whole different set of causes that are causing that to progress into actual cancer. And that's a whole nother barrel of, of worms. So, um, maybe further along, there will be more specific causes of cancer that would allow me to go into more detail. But I would say, uh, that kind of sums up the modifiable risk factors. The real obvious non-modifiable risk factor is age. Uh, getting older is probably the single most important cause of cancer, but it's not something that any of us can do anything about. So, uh, I think those other things are, are better targeted to actually, um, you know, things that we are actionable for us. Thank you for your question, Deborah. Melody Scott Smith says, what are good diagnostics to check whether impaired methylation is causing a problem? In other words, since gene status expression and activation are involved, it seems short-sighted to intervene based simply on presence of an SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism, for example, MTHFR C677T. For example, what do you think of taking a broadly acting methyl donor like SAMe 1200 milligrams daily for a month as an initial diagnostic while observing symptoms and our markers and what what would they be? I think that's a great idea and an expensive one. So, I mean, before you take CME, it makes sense to check your diet, right? So CME is a form of methionine that, and methionine is, comes from protein and it's twice as abundant in animal proteins as plant proteins. So, I mean, if you're if you are eating a diet that's extremely low in animal protein, then no, I don't think it makes sense to spend a boatload of money on SAMe as an initial diagnostic. I think it makes sense to bring your, you know, uh, ethical issues notwithstanding. Uh, I mean, if you have no ethical problems with it, it, the far better or the far more sensible initial thing to do is bring your uh, animal protein intake up to. Uh, one or 1.2 grams per kilogram 
lean mass if you're not eating that. Um, and that's number one. And if you're not eating liver, legumes, and leafy greens, fix that. Um, if you, you know, if you're eating a nutrient poor diet, fix that. But if you've hit all those bases and you have a specific problem that you're trying to solve, then, and it sounds reasonable that deficient methylation is possibly at the root of it, then I would say absolutely, uh, take, take that dose of SAMe, which is, um, the principal methyl donor that is the whole, that this whole pathway is trying to support take that and see if it fixes the problem. If it fixes the problem, that tells you this is a problem of deficient SAMe. And then the question becomes, well, how can we greater analyze this to see what we can do to support endogenous production of SAMe? I mean, some people, if they have the money, may want to just stick with the SAMe, but I prefer... Uh, the I prefer using it in the way that y you are suggesting, which is see if that fixes the problem. That tells you a lot about what more natural strategies you could use to endogenously support methylation. And your point is very well taken that just having the genetic polymorphism doesn't tell you what's going on in your body. Uh, I think that nutrigenomics is the, is the future. Um, we're starting to head into that era, but even at its peak, uh, we will never be determining diet based on an algorithm derived from genetics. And trying to do so is a total waste of time and is going to be counterproductive precisely for the reason that you state. The genetic polymorphisms can give us insight in, in terms of a larger picture about what to do if we see a problem. But it doesn't tell us whether the problems we're looking for are there. And we have to look at the total metabolism. So we combine genetics with signs and symptoms and clinical history and blood markers of nutrient status and blood markers of metabolites in the various path pathways that we can construct together into a large, big picture of what metabolically is going on. And it is from that that we begin to deduce solutions if there are problems that we need to fix. Thank you, Melody, for your question. Neil Quinn says, I've heard that choline can help prevent fatty liver disease. True or false? Better to supplement with eggs before or after drinking alcohol. Um, true. Choline protects against all forms of fatty liver disease, whether they're caused by sugar, fat, or alcohol. And uh, absolutely, choline is king. Uh, this video will become a podcast probably released on Monday and the show notes will be available at my website chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast and I will link there to the choline articles that I've written which are very extensive but I think that when you read them you will agree with me that uh, choline is definitely king when it comes to fatty liver disease. There are other issues right in the small minority of cases, alcohol is important. And that's really important if you're an alcoholic. It's not really important if you're having, uh, you know, an occasional set of drunkenness with friends or like one glass of wine each night, five days a week or something like that. Um, in mo most cases, the issue is non-alcoholic, regardless of whether the person has some alcohol in their diet. 
And in that case, body composition and insulin sensitivity are uh, just as important as choline. And finally, oxidative stress is it, oxidative stress is also just as important as choline. And I would say in general, most people who have oxidative stress going on in their liver, in the general population, that's also because of body composition and insulin sensitivity uh, and uh, combined with a nutrient poor diet. In terms of using eggs before or after drinking alcohol, I think that's a red herring. The timing is not important. What is important is your overall choline status. I would, you know, I mean, I'm all for being weird, but like I, I could keep it normal here. Eat the eggs the next morning for breakfast. Thank you for your question, Neil. Um, Carla says, hi, Chris. My daughter had a B12 deficiency. Her levels were 108 and giving her grass-fed beef liver in a B12 supplement as methylcobalamin helped her increase it to 1400. I have suspected she has an MTHFR gene issue, but given we addressed the deficiency with food and supplementation, does that mean MTHFR is not applicable in her case? Thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, thank you, Carla. I'm, I'm glad to produce valuable work for you. Uh, so first of all, I don't support using tests of serum vitamin B12. I'm assuming that's what you mean here. Um, I think that, you know, clearly if that's low and it responds to supplementation, that means that B12 is getting into the body. But I don't, I mean, I think it's, um, it's borderline outrageous that that's used for routine screening of vitamin B12 deficiency. I would support looking at, I don't think hollow transcobalamin 2 is ready commercially. If it is, that's good. Uh, I definitely know that you could get methylmalonic acid or maybe they'll call it methyl... Uh, Methylmalonyl-CoA, MMA, various names, it's all the same thing. That's a functional marker of vitamin B12 deficiency. If it's high, then vitamin B12 status is poor. And that's really important because like high B12 in the blood, it's sort of like, who cares? Maybe you have a backup in utilization of that B12. So, um, I mean, so it's, I mean, it's, it's great that you're, you're increasing the levels, but I would strongly suggest that you measure MMA to, and I don't mean mixed martial arts, I mean methylmalonic <laughs> acid. Um, I would strongly suggest measuring that as a functional marker of B12 status. If you suspect she has an MTHFR gene issue, uh, find out if she has an MTHFR gene issue. So uh, get 23andMe and send your, um, send your raw data to MTHFR support uh, genetic genie or NutraHacker, and uh, if you send it to NutraHacker, ignore everything in the right column of the report that tells you what to do with the information, and only look at whether the polymorphisms are there. Uh, if you find out the if you find out her genetic status, they that may give you a better idea of what to do. But you know, right now, I don't think you should do anything until you have more information about that. Thank you for your question, Carla. Deborah Gordon says, hi, Chris. Nice to see you on FB and great podcast. Thank you, Deborah. It's great to see you on FB as well. What do you think of Ben Lynch's cautions that excess methylation in folks with COMT SNPs? Quite a different approach than methylation savvy internists who just think everyone can be on high dose methylfolate if they have MTHFR SNPs. Thoughts? Um, I don't think... 
So I don't, I'm not, I mean, I don't know that I agree with either of these things. So first of all, methylation savvy internists blasting people with high doses of methylfolate. That sounds exactly like someone who graduated from a pharmacological a pharmacologically oriented institution and decided to practice integrative medicine by integrating nutrition supplements as their drugs. Um, I, I, I'm, I apologize to everyone that I just insulted who's really trying to do great work here. Uh, I'm, it's not a personal thing, but I mean, that's a, that's a drug-based approach. It's not, a, it's not a nutritionally oriented approach. It's not even a, I wouldn't call that functional medicine either because um, you, you know, it's, it's not sort of what you want to do is try to do, try to get a full picture of the metabol of the metabolism going on and see, you know, what are the actual issues being expressed when we look at a big picture of metabolism? And then, you know, what are the, uh, what are the things that we can do that get closest to the root of the problem to fix those things? And looking at an MTHFR snip and, and then, blasting it with 5-methylfolate doesn't get, it's not even like th those, it's, <laughs> they're in totally different categories of approaches. Um, so first of all, I don't know that I entirely agree that 5-methylfolate is going to harm someone with a COMT SNP, but uh, let's, I need to give background information on COMT to get everyone on the same page. All right, so COMT is catechol O-methyltransferase. And it's really, it does quite a few things, but it's really important in the nervous system for regulating neurotransmitters. And I would say overwhelmingly in terms of personality and psychology, the, I don't want to give the idea that this is the only thing it's impacting, but I really think that it, the strongest thing that's relevant is dopamine. And if you look at the general population, you can basically have a, intermediate high meth uh, intermediate methylation COMT genotype which is 50% of people you can have a low methylation COMT genotype which is 25% of people and you can have a high methylation COMT genotype which is 25% of people if you look at that distribution what that strongly suggests is that there's pressure that there's evolutionary pressure that's consistently been acting through human history right up until now to try to keep people away from the extremes of methylation in the nervous system with respect to these neurotransmitters, particularly dopamine. Um, and if you look at why, uh, a great introduction to this from a, from a sort of uh, moderately technical uh, baseline would be my article, The Pursuit of Happiness, from a few years ago, where I talked about the importance of dopamine in regulating mental fluidity and mental rigidity. So if you think about how this is impacting dopamine in the brain, you basically have two pools of dopamine in the brain. One is the amount of dopamine that's always there in the background, and we call that tonic dopamine. The other is the pool of phasic dopamine. These are huge spikes of dopamine that come in response to novel stimuli that you're experiencing that last only milliseconds. And those phasic pulses of dopamine are what allows you to change your mental state and adapt to new stimuli.
And when your brain perceives the phasic pulse of dopamine, it reads it on the background of the tonic dopamine. So if you imagine, say here, we have a solid body of water, and then imagine my microphone, if you're watching the video here, is a wave that comes up, the microphone goes, ooh, ooh, and, it, and th those are like the phasic pulses of dopamine. If we raise the level of tonic dopamine and the microphone comes up in the wave, ooh, it's coming up just the same amount, but what the brain is perceiving is that tiny bit that's popping above the background of tonic, excuse me, that the brain is perceiving that, um, that tiny amount that's popping up against the background of tonic dopamine. Now, methylation mediated by COMT is what controls the level of tonic dopamine. So more methylation from COMT means more breakdown of tonic dopamine. And that means that the background noise of dopamine is lower and that those phasic impulses of dopamine are going to look larger. What that means is that your mental state is more fluid and you can more easily adapt to new stimuli. On the other hand, if you have a low methylation phenotype, um, specifically with COMT, you're going to have less breakdown of the tonic dopamine. The tonic dopamine level will be higher. Those phasic impulses of dopamine will look smaller to the brain and you will have more rigidity and you will be less adaptable to new stimuli. Now, being flexible is great, but when you're too flexible, that means you're too easily distracted and you can't focus on anything. By contrast, when uh, you know having stability is good, but when you're too stable and you're too rigid, you can't let go of any ideas. So anxiety and depression seem to be strongly associated with the low methylation COMT genotype. And that's because if something that causes you negative emotions enters your brain and you have too much rigidity in your mental state, then that image comes in and it stays there. And if it stays there, you, you, your next line of defense is try to wrestle with it mentally. And if you can't force yourself to get rid of the image through cognitive use, use of cognitive force, then it stays there until your amygdala, the you know, emotional center, lights up and fires up and produces an emotional response. So if that image is something that causes you anxiety and you have a low COMT methylation phenotype, you're, instead of that image coming in and going out like a healthy... You know, the healthy psychology says, I see the image, I don't care, I don't like it, goodbye, and it goes away, right? The, the low, what you get with low methylation COMT is a predisposition for that image to come in and you say, I don't like that image, and the image stays there, and you say, I don't like that image, I'm going to make it go away, and if that doesn't work, it stays there, and then you get an emotional response, and that could be an anxiety-promoting image, it could be a set of thoughts that make you depressed, and so on and so forth, and so... You can take that and you can say, oh, let's have lots and lots and lots of COMT methylation. But there's also evidence that when you have a high methylation genotype with COMT, then the end result that you get is uh, you, you can't focus. So what problems do you have when you can't focus? You don't do as well in academics, for example. Uh, if you look at severe psychological disorders, what you would get in the 
uh, high, uh, what you would get in the high flexibility phenotype is a flight of ideas, like to a pathological, completely debilitating level, you know, each new stimulus comes in and goes, comes in and goes, comes in and goes, comes in and goes. And you're you, like every possible stimulus enters your brain and does something and leaves and goes on to the next one. And it, and that d- drives you crazy. And it drives you just as crazy as having the opposite pathological phenotype where you, you're subject to mental rigidity and these ideas are staying there and gripping hold of you to the point where it's totally debilitating. So yeah, we want intermediate... Um, we want intermediate methylation, and I would totally agree with Ben Lynch on that for those reasons. But you know, how important is the uh, is throwing five methylfolate into this? I don't think that throwing five methylfolate uh, into this is going to cause overmethylation. Um, what you know the way that this the way that methylation is regulated is it's all based on the body is supposed to take the raw materials and regulate it itself it's not um it's not i, I don't know where, where i don't know how people study this for years and years and years and then come out thinking that you that the body has no homeostasis and you can just like pull this lever and make that thing happen pull that lever and make that thing happen that's not how it works it's a system that's highly regulated and you if you have a problem in it it's either because the raw materials aren't there or it's because something is thrown off in the regulation it's not because you weren't pulling the right levers with which supplements you were throwing in so to to describe this briefly how this would work is if you have too many methyl groups coming in, then the extra SAMe, the principal methyl donor, uh, offers feedback to um, offers feedback to lower the production of 5-methylfolate. But then, uh, if you uh, but then that depletion of 5-methylfolate is uh, driving wasting of glycine uh, through the um, uh, it acts as the signal to waste glycine through the um, uh, through the buffer system that I was talking about before. And so, you know, actually, I guess now that I'm thinking about this, I think that if you were to get the excess of 5-methylfolate into that actual point in the system, it probably could shut down the natural buffering system. And yeah, you know, maybe... Now, the more I think about this, the more I think maybe, maybe Ben Lynch is right on point with this. Um... Yeah, so I mean, maybe that's maybe that that would cause that problem, but I would back up and I would say that first of all, I'm not quite sure the degree to which putting 5-methylfolate into the system actually causes the accumulation of 5-methylfolate right in that spot in the cell. Um, off the top of my head, I would suspect that there are regulatory processes that are going to mitigate that, but I'm not 100% sure what they are. Uh, but I would definitely say that. Um, what you want to have in place to get that balance is lots of the raw materials, including the glycine to act as a buffer. And so, yeah, you don't want to get super physiological uh, amounts of 5-methylfolate into that place because that could disrupt the signaling. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, so it's, a, it's a tough game to play if you have someone with the MTHFR defect where they're subject to constant abnormal 
decrease in the 5-methylfolate because that decrease is also throwing off the signaling. So I think, you know, from a supplementation perspective, you want to say, how can we bring it up to normal? And I don't really know that you can, uh, you know, at best right now, what you could do is try to look at that in red blood cells, but that's not telling you what's going on in the brain. So I, th I would say you want to take this on a, um, on a, a, Psych you want to take it on a psychological basis, right? If the person is subject to excess mental flexibility or rigidity or other problems that could be related to methylation regulation of neurotransmitters under the control of COMT, then look at the results of the methylfolate. Is the person having decreased anxiety and depression? Is the person have having increased distractibility? And take those signs as how to adjust the treatment. But definitely don't just think that you can throw unlimited doses of 5-methylfolate at the problem. All right. Thank you, Deborah, for your question. Anton uh, has the next question. Is there any association between OCD and methylation? Um, off the top of my head, it's been years since I looked at this. And I think that OCD is associated with low methylation along the lines that I was talking about before. Um, but I don't, I don't remember the specific data to back that up, uh, but I would say that, um, I know in, in my particular case, I was vegan and I definitely had symptoms of OCD that totally disappeared when I started eating animal foods, including a lot of liver and a lot of bones and a lot of plant foods, including leafy greens. And you could make a really strong case that what my diet was doing was m causing massive support to methylation that wasn't there before. Um, so altogether, my st very strong suspicion is that low methylation phenotype predisposes to OCD. Thank you, Anton, for your question. Catherine Graham-Peterson says, I'm having trouble finding much information about the 1298C mutation. Do you know why that is? Is the other mutation more common? I would like to find out more about it. Yeah, the other mutation is way more common. Uh, hopefully what I said at the beginning of the show offers you some help in getting started thinking about that. Um, but you will definitely not find that there's as much information about that as the more common one, simply because the more common one is more common. And probably also because I think there's maybe a bias towards this of saying, I think, you know, part of the reason that there's more about the C677T is not just that it's more common, it's also that it's more controversial, right? Like everyone's always arguing. No one, you know, no one's arguing about whether a, a rare severe mutation is having an effect on homocysteine. But like everyone's always arguing about does the C677T, you know, like one of the debates is, should we care about it at all? And then then there's like the subcamp that says, or the camp that says, yes, we should care about it. And then there's, you know, lots of disagreement and conflicting studies about why we should care about it. Uh, is it affecting, um, is it affecting red blood cell volume? Is it affecting homocysteine? Is it affecting the choline requirement? And so there's all these competing hypotheses about it. And I think that also is what drives the research, right? If no one is going to, if no one is going to argue about it, then people are kind of like, oh, we found the answer. Let's move on. And, you know, probably that confidence is exaggerated, but 
it's what happens in science. There's a limited amount of money and time, uh, and and you know people p- prioritize and triage what they're going to research. Thank you, Catherine, for your uh, question. Spencer Jensen says, Chris, what's your take on sunflower lecithin versus choline egg-based lecithin? I avoid soy lecithin due to the GMO concerns, and I'm allergic to eggs. I take sunflower lecithin in place of soy and eggs. I don't know of a... I mean, if it were me, I would take the egg, but if you're allergic to eggs, I don't know of a particular reason to not... to be scared of the sunflower lecithin. So... Uh, I, you know, I would say I wouldn't overlook liver in this, but it, you know, if you're trying to, and also, you know, if it's not like, so liver and egg yolks are by far away the richest sources of choline, but there's also a very wide variety of vegetables and nuts that are, you know, kind of abundant in choline as far as plant foods go. And they're, are also, you know, if you have an issue with choline intake and you don't have an issue with folate metabolism, then more folate can compensate for not as much choline. So there are a variety of ways to approach this from a natural foods-based way as well. And I don't, I wouldn't say take the lecithin unless you have a clear, clear evidence that either there's a problem it could resolve or you, um, either there's a problem that it could resolve or uh, you find through experience that you know that it provides a benefit from taking it. But I wouldn't take it only because you are allergic to eggs. Uh, I, I, when this comes out as a podcast, I'll post in the show notes at uh, chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast uh, my article about meeting the choline requirement so that you that can help you figure out a few different ways to use natural foods to meet your requirement as well. Thank you for your question, Spencer. Bet Houston says, hi. Hi, Bet. I have my DNA results and apparently have many potential methylation issue SNPs. Overwhelming, but I'm working on learning. My ongoing concerning mystery for years is occasionally having a very strong ammonia scent to my urine. Where would you suggest I start with this? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that I can provide anything more than a guess, but I would say a urinary organic acids test might provide some insight into what's going on, and it would be sort of data mining, but I would start by looking at any abnormalities of the stuff that's in your urine. Um, if it actually is ammonia, then that, I mean, then it's probably ammonia that's in your urine. Uh, but then the question is why? Uh, so, I mean, either you, I mean, the most, the thing that sort of jumps into my head as a obvious guess is that for some reason you are relying to a greater degree on protein catabolism for your energy. And I don't know why that would be unless you are eating a high-protein, low-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. And particularly if you're also simultaneously trying to lose weight, um, either that or there's some metabolic abnormality. But yeah, I would start with uh, getting everything that you can get analyzed in your urine and see what the abnormalities are. And uh, I think a typical urinary organic acids test would provide some specific metabolites relevant to nitrogen metabolism that could give you some 
uh, some idea as to what's going on. Thank you, Bet, for your question. Kira Miftari says, I have the same question as Deborah Gordon above. I've heard that choline can help prevent fatty liver disease, true or false? Kira, true. Spencer Jensen, Chris, you and your accumulated knowledge and research is amazing. Thanks, Spencer. I've learned a lot from you and sharing your knowledge has made a great difference in my life. You are very much appreciated. Thank you very much, Spencer. I'm glad that I could be of value to you. Leandro Olivi, uh, and thank you, Spencer, for showing up here. It's great to have, uh, you know, you're providing value to me by coming. Leandro Oliveira says, if a person doesn't react well to eggs, what's the best other option to get choline? In terms of abundance, liver, right? But hardly anyone would eat as much liver as they could eggs. So uh, again, I will direct you to my article on meeting the choline requirement that I will post in the show notes to this episode when it comes out Monday at chrismasterjohnphd slash podcast. But um, I would say, apart from supplements, very briefly, liver, obviously, um, but meats are pretty high and low starch vegetables like you know for example broccoli is pretty high and certain nuts are pretty high compared to a lot of other vegetable foods so those would be your natural choices and then of course there's always choline supplements i would not use the choline supplements unless you again as i said before unless you have a specific reason to do so not i wouldn't take it just because you don't eat eggs thank you leandro for your question thomas oh Apologize for dropping the phone. It's uh, one of the costs of doing Facebook Live. Um, okay. Uh, sorry, folks. Where was I? Um, all right. Thomas Renan says, hi. Hi, Thomas. It is my understanding that the metabolic pathway involved in getting rid of excess methionine uses up glycine in the process. Your understanding is correct, Thomas. So in the context of a diet low in methionine, a diet low in muscle meat, would it still be beneficial to include foods like gelatin or oxtail soup? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I don't know that anyone has really produced a quantitative analysis of to what degree is our glycine requirement dependent on methionine. In principle, yeah, a low methionine diet will spare the need for glycine. Uh, but the problem is that Ever since the early 20th century, we've been biased by this idea that glycine isn't an essential nutrient and therefore it's not important. And we started out saying, let's define everything that promotes growth in rats as a essential nutrient and define everything that doesn't as not. And then we sort of moved on to a mature, a more mature understanding that was still somewhat naive, which was, let's see biochemically if we can synthesize this thing or if we can't. And then we started to move on to a more mature understanding after uh, like 80 years, which was, let's see if w under all conditions, we can always make enough of this to support optimal health. And when we reached that point, that's when we started rethinking things and saying, hey, maybe we need to eat glycine. Hey, maybe we need to eat choline. And now choline is an essential nutrient, but that wasn't shown until... Um, it was in the 2000s that choline was first recognized as an essential nutrient, if I remember correctly. Maybe I'm confusing that with the 90s, but I think it was the 2000s. It was when they showed that on TPN, you developed fatty liver that would go away when you supplement with choline. Um, anyway, quantitatively, 
we it has been estimated that we fall short of our glycine requirement in endogenous synthesis by 10 grams per day. Most of us are not eating 10 grams per day of glycine. And if you're eating less protein, that's even more true because if you're eating low animal protein, then it, it's not that plant protein is any less high in glycine than muscle meat, but plant foods that are high in protein for plant foods are lower in protein than animal foods and the protein is less bioavailable. So just by switching over to a plant-based diet, you're decreasing your methionine intake and your glycine intake. Uh, and in that case, I think that it's not obvious how much of that 10 grams, if we assume that's an accurate number you spared. So yeah, I think it would be great to consume oxtail and other collagen-rich proteins. Uh, that is, you know, that's what's been the typical norm in human society. Maybe you ate a lot of meat. Maybe you ate meat once a week. But, you know, if you ate any meat, like half of what you were gathering from the animal was stuff that makes collagen-rich foods. So I don't think that just because you eat less animal flesh that you should not eat collagen-rich foods. Um, if you eat a lot of meat, then that probably means you want to focus more on making sure you also eat a lot of gelatin. But I think that gelatin, I mean, I would say it's a food group, in my opinion. Thank you, Thomas, for your question. Jim Eastwood, taking Foley does not work for everyone. It causes muscle pain for some of us, exclamation point. Um, thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, I would agree that you should not take folate if it causes you muscle pain. Derek Walton, what do you think is the evolutionary advantage of MTHFR? Um, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. So if you're asking literally what you asked me, then clearly the evolutionary advantage is that without MTHFR, you would not be able to pass methyl groups onto homocysteine and you would not be able to regenerate methionine, uh, and that whole pathway would fail. You know, with the exception, of course, of the uh, the my, the other pathway that can augment that from choline. But you you would have a huge decrease in your capacity to do that. I'm not sure if you might be asking me what is the evolutionary advantage of the MTHFR C77T mutation. If that's the case, um, I have. I have no idea. I mean, it is associated with a decreased risk of colon cancer, but I kind of doubt that that's mediating uh, positive selection for it. But I also don't, I've never seen an, analy an analysis showing that it was positively selected for. To be honest, I didn't, I haven't really looked for that. So, uh, you know, let me know in the comments or in the comments uh, in the video or in the podcast show notes on Monday, if you know of evidence that that mutation was positively selected for. Thank you, Derek, for your question. Uh, Matthios says, Chris, would all of my serum B12 labs come back off the charts elevated? Oh, why would all my serum B12 labs come back off the charts elevated even before any exogenous doses? I have 1298C, heterozygous, and chronic Lyme disease. Um, if you mean your, B, your serum B12 is really high, then my guess is that there's a backup in B12 utilization. As I said before, I'm sort of, I don't, I don't understand what the point of measuring serum B12 is. M maybe this is the point, right? Like maybe this unexplainable high serum B12 that rarely occurs is the point. 
but I still don't see the point of it because no one in clinical use is doing anything with that information that I've seen. I see people come back with high serum B12 and it's like, oh, stop taking B12 or whatever. So, um, so first of all, if you want to know anything about your B12 status, measure MMA. Um, if it's available, holotranscobalamin 2, I don't know if anyone's made that available yet. Um, measuring everything else in the methylation pathway could be valuable. I don't, I honestly, I don't, there's probably something to do with Lyme disease here that I can't answer because I don't know enough about Lyme disease. So I'm sure that I'm overlooking something here. Uh, but if, let's see, if folate, um, if folate is not passing on methyl groups to B12, then that means that you're not going to be able to utilize B12 in that pathway. But I don't know that that means that you're not going to be able to transport B12 into the cell for utilization. Maybe there's some feedback saying, hey, this B12 is not doing anything in the cell. Therefore, why bother taking in more B12 and it winds up in your blood? I don't know. I don't know enough about the transport mechanisms to say whether that is probably the case. But it's the only thing that I could think of if we're going to assume that your MTHFR mutation is at the root of it. But maybe your MTHFR mutation is not at the root of it. So definitely measure MMA to further understand B12 status. Um, I, I think this is a case, you know, if you have a, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but if you have a mystery case in a possible methylation related issue, I would recommend uh, as I recommended last episode, the European Laboratory of Nutrients, Health Diagnostics and Research Institute Methylation Pathway Panel, I think that could show uh, better characterize what that metabolic pathway looks like and might be able to provide uh, better information to help you understand that. Thank you, Matthias, for your question. Danny says, hi, Chris, I have high liver enzymes. I have a 677T mutation. How can I bring these enzymes back to normal? Thank you. Uh, Steven Ziesel's research would suggest um, you have a car in your picture. I'm guessing by the spelling of your name that you are female. I don't know how old you are. Anyway, um, there's a gender effect and there's a menopausal effect based on estrogen. But in general, uh, people with the 677T mutation have a greater tax on their choline supply to make up for the methylation demand, and that causes depletion of choline, which then causes uh, accumulation of liver fat and hepatic dysfunction, and that can be, although liver enzymes are not a specific marker for fatty liver disease, there is evidence that Oh, also there's a, there's a genetic polymorphism that could be relevant called PEMT and PEMT is regulated by estrogen, which is why, um, which is why there's an association of menopausal status in females with the choline requirement. But it's also the case that the polymorphism that decreases the activity of PEMT is really, really, uh, common. And so what that means is that in general, uh, premenopausal women with healthy estrogen levels are protected from choline deficiency by the expression of PEMT. But if they have the PEMT polymorphism, then estrogen is not beneficial to them. So uh, you could either have hormonal issues that are affecting your choline requirement, or you could have a polymorphism in the PEMT gene that's affecting it 
but regardless of anything that I just said that causes a, a, a change in the choline requirement, it's probably the case that boosting your choline nutrition can help you with your liver function. And in that case, I will also direct you to my article on meeting the choline requirement for more information. Thank you, Danny, for your question. Bashir says, hi, Chris, your thoughts on fasting in general for health. There's the high, higher carbers who kind of despise the idea, yet the low carbers and keto guys praise it. Thank you. Really appreciate your work. Thank you, Bashir, for your question. Um, I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to answer it really quickly because this episode is dedicated to methylation. A great place to ask that for more detail would be in the uh, not next episode, but the one after that, where the theme is going to be Ask Me Anything About Anything. And uh, so right now, I'll just say really quickly that it's I find it absolutely true that there is a strong association of bias for or against fasting based on bias for or against carbohydrate. That's very astute observation of you. But in general, there is a paradigm network where people who are biased against carbs are biased in favor of fasting and people who are biased in favor of carbs are biased against fasting. That's so true. That's so absolutely true. Um, very quickly, <laughs> very quickly. Uh, fasting is good for you. Fasting is bad for you. It depends on the context. The biggest context that is important is your cumulative allostatic load. You can think of that as your stress bucket. Fasting is a stress. Exercise is a stress. Carbohydrate deprivation is a stress. Ketogenic diet is a stress. Um, challenges in your life are a stress. Like There's nothing good or bad about stress, but how you respond to it is important and the cumulative load is important. And although each stress is different and has a different set of parameters in terms of what is too much, what is the wrong context, a very large driver of whether things that are stresses are good or bad for you is your cumulative allostatic load. So to some degree, it's important to put everything in one bucket and then ask yourself, how full is my bucket and can I fit fasting? Thank you, Bashir, for your question. Anton Dietzen, Dietzen says, thanks, Chris. Makes sense with the info you gave on cog flexibility. Uh, thank you, Anton. I'm glad that was helpful. Sarah Walter says, could you shed some light on the tie between PTSD and COMT SNPs and methylation? It sounds like dopamine is very much involved based on what you were saying earlier. The hallmark of PTSD seems to be the mental rigidity and overactive amygdala. Uh, yeah, you said it, right? I mean, PTSD is there's some overwhelming stress that stays in your mind and doesn't leave. And after that trauma, you have a stress disorder. I mean, it's it's all sort of spelled out so clearly right there. And everything that I said about dopamine is so relevant to that. Um, I'm not really sure that I can say more about that. I mean, as you correctly observed, that is another application of what I was saying before. And I think that's uh, great. So, you know, addressing the methylation is one part of that. That's only addressing the biochemical predisposition. Cognitive therapy is just as important, but it's like, you know, your cog like cognitive therapy is, is acting on the background of the physio physiological predisposition. So how effective is the uh, cognitive therapy? That depends on whether the physiological background is favorable to the cognitive therapy or not. So don't expect methylation to fix PTSD, but don't expect 
cognitive approaches to fix fix PTSD if your if your physiology is haywire and you're not doing anything about it, right? So I think a multifaceted approach that addresses it from every angle is the best one. Uh, Carmen Hunter says, um, thank you for your question, Sarah. Carmen Hunter says, what are your thoughts on the relationship between thyroid autoimmunity and methylation SNPs 1298 and C677? Uh, I don't know. I haven't looked into that specifically. I would say that in general, thyroid autoimmunity probably has multiple things going on, but one of them is oxidative stress in the thyroid gland. And there's you know, the thyroid gland produces copious amounts of hydrogen peroxide in order to make thyroid hormone. That's very dangerous. It is only safe when there's a very strong antioxidant support in the thyroid gland. Principle of that is selenium and glutathione. So for example, there's some evidence that selenium supplementation can be helpful in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, similarly, you know, selenium is only being helpful there because of glutathione. Um, it, if you so the MTHFR SNP shouldn't be a main thing causing you to not be able to synthesize glutathione, but it could be causing homocysteine to accumulate, which causes oxidative stress and could be could deplete glutathione. So that's a potential connection. Um, clearly, there are so many roles of methylation that I don't know that I can, I'm, will by no means say that's the answer, uh, but it might be part of it. And if there's more to it, I would need to study it more to understand what that more is. Thank you, Carmen, for your question. Mark says, hi, Chris, I just joined in here and had a question about B12. I recently had a B12 blood test that I came back elevated at 1152 picograms per milliliter. I was doing some sublingual supplementation, but not excessively. Is that dangerous or might there be another reason it would be that high? Uh, Mark, I addressed that earlier in my responses, so I'll leave it at that. My answer to you would be the same. If you came in late and you missed it, when I post the show notes Monday at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast, uh, there will be a time-based map that shows you uh, when you can skip to in the audio or video to find that specific question. Um, if you were already here, then then hopefully you got what you were looking for out of my answer before. Keith Bell provided a link. I'm, I appreciate it, Keith, but I can't look at links while I'm doing Facebook Live. Um, sorry that uh, that's the case. Uh, Derek Walton meant SMP. Okay, great. Uh, Danny, oh, Danny says, I'm male at 41. I'm on a high-fat diet. Um, and I had my gallbladder removed. Uh Okay, so everything that I said about estrogen and menopause, re regulation of PMT doesn't apply, but everything else does. So it's still the case that choline is really important. Um, I would say, you know, think carefully about why you're on a high-fat diet. I mean, you're in a position where you had your gallbladder removed. Gallbladder is really important in digesting fat. You're not in the best, you're not, doesn't sound like you're the best candidate for a high-fat diet. Uh, it's worth looking at whether you have hepatic fat accumulation. You can do that with biopsy. I wouldn't recommend it both because of it, it's invasive and it's also, uh, you know, it could hit or miss in terms of whether you get the right section of tissue. Uh, ultrasound is probably the least invasive way to do it um, in terms of the best balance between invasiveness and sensitive information, MRI or MRS would be the best way to do it. But look at liver fat. Choline would help, um, you know, in all honesty, 
think carefully about why you're on a high fat diet and, and think about whether you're going to lower the fat because um, if particularly if you don't have a gallbladder and then particularly if you don't have enough colon, uh, choline, then more fat fluxing through the liver from dietary fat is, um, is sort of, I, I'm not saying that a high fat diet is intrinsically bad. It's just that in a situation with poor liver function and, uh, and no gallbladder, it's sort of the most likely type of diet to make everything worse. So I would consider, um, I would consider, I mean, try choline supplementation and see if everything disappears. If everything doesn't thing doesn't just disappear with choline supplementation, rethink your macronutrient ratios. A diet that's high in higher in starch, lower in fat, moderate or low in natural sugars, and low in very low in refined sugars would probably be the one that is most gentle to the specific situation that you're in. Thank you, Danny. Ron Culbertson says. I seem to have the MTHFR gene problem and hence poor methylation and high homocysteine. Also, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia type 2A, B12, uh, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, and methylfolate help homocysteine numbers. With MTHFR, nitric oxide production seems to be low because of MTHFR. What would be a good strategy to increase NO production? Um, I don't know that much about MTHFR and nitric oxide production. And if I remember correctly, I this is one of those things where I tried looking it up and came away a bit skeptical about what everyone was saying about it. But I will say that um, not knowing much, if anything, about the connection, but knowing a little bit about nitric oxide... Uh, it's possible that if you don't have any viral issues, L-arginine supplementation would be useful and uh, supporting the antioxidant defense system, which is a very complicated topic but um, for another time, but supporting antioxidant support could also be useful. Thank you, Ron, for your question. Uh, sorry I couldn't give you more definitive detail. Liz says, are you familiar with sulfation? And if so, in your opinion, what is the best way to regulate the sulfation pathway to reverse or treat sulfur and salicylate intolerance. Um, I'm not sure I totally understand your question. So the transsulfuration pathway is very closely related to the methylation pathway, and that is that um, when you have high homocysteine concentrations due to a high influx of sulfur amino acids, then instead of recycling it to methionine, what you do is in a vitamin B6 and serine dependent manner, you convert homocysteine to cysteine and that allows you to produce taurine, it allows you to produce sulfate and allows you to produce glutathione. Glutathione is the master antioxidant of the cell and takes priority. So you will synthesize glutathione up and until the point where you either uh, where your body either perceives that it doesn't need any more glutathione or that it can't make any more glutathione because there are other things that are limiting and then whatever spills over from that produces taurine and sulfate. Um, I don't... Sulfur intolerance, I don't know what's at the bottom of that. It's I'm not familiar with that. I would think that... Um, I, I, can't, I can't say anything about sulfur intolerance. Salicylate intolerance... Mm, the things that are <clears throat> useful for getting rid of salicylates are uh, glycine and glucuronide. We make our own glucuronide 
and there is also a little bit in kombucha. I don't know that that's really going to, you could try that, but I wouldn't take more than a few ounces a day. And I don't know that that's enough to really provide enough glucuronide to make a difference. And I don't know that someone who is intolerant of salicylates is really a good candidate in general to drink kombucha. But um, apart from that, I would say that salicylate intolerance, I think, probably has a lot of other things going on in it, including changes in metabolism that don't have anything directly to do with salicylate detoxification. So, uh, for example, salicylates may be, you may have a uh, differences in how you metabolize arachidonic acid. And so, for example, if you have upregulation of enzymes that make inflammatory compounds uh, that are not, so arachidonic acid goes through two uh, metabolic pathways. One set, broadly speaking, is the COX enzyme, and the other set, very broadly speaking, is, um, is uh, if I remember right, leukotriene synthesis. And so uh, if you don't have leukotriene synthesis upregulated, uh, salicylates blocking COX is, is not going to be bad, but if you have the enzymes upregulated to make leukotrienes and then you throw salicylates in at lower COX, then basically leukotriene synthesis is like all the arachidonic acid goes in that way and that provokes an inflammatory reaction. So a lot of this has nothing to do with methylation really. So I'll leave it at that. And then um, either in the ask me anything episode, we can talk about that, or maybe we can do a food intolerances themed episode. Thank you, Liz, for your question. Ellie Joe Smith says, is there a relationship between H pylori and methylation? Probably, but I don't know what it is. Uh, Sorry that I can't offer more information, Ellie. But thank you for your question. Carmen says, do you prefer liposomal glutathione? Uh, Prefer to what? I mean, it depends on the situation. So in the typical person, I would prefer that the person eat a nutrient-adequate diet, that the person uh, maximize their body composition into ideal levels, and that the person maximize their insulin sensitivity, largely driven by improvements in body composition, and that the body that the person need a nutrient dense and well rounded diet that contains enough protein, protein that can contains a lot of fruits and vegetables that contains a broad spectrum of micronutrient adequacy, including all the B vitamins and includes organs and bones. Uh, you know that's the that's the first line of defense for glutathione. Second line of defense is try supplying gamma glutamyl cysteine bonds. Those can be found naturally in raw milk or raw egg white. Raw egg white has some drawbacks uh, that could be debated endlessly. And so it may be the case that you wouldn't digest the protein very well. It may be the case that if you're not also consuming the yolks, you get a biotin deficiency from that. In general, I'm, I prefer raw milk in that sense, but I don't drink raw milk because even with the raw milk lactase, I don't tolerate the lactose very well. I eat aged cheese and the aged cheese doesn't have those proteins at all. Uh, So if you're not doing that either way, then whey protein is the next best supplement. And then after that, you say, okay, do you have poor glutathione status? Then maybe it's time to take liposomal glutathione. I would say liposomal glutathione is a very good tool if you have a specific reason for it. And that specific reason should be what motivates you to pay the hefty amount of money that's going to cost and to deal with 
the bad taste in your mouth every morning or however often that you take liposomal glutathione. So yeah, it has its utility, but shouldn't be the first line of defense for anyone. Thank you, Carmen, for your question. Uh, Mark, Carmen says, thank you. You're welcome. Mark Kaiser says, is there a particular form of selenium that is best for supplementation? Thanks, Chris. Mark, um, I would prefer selenocysteine. I don't know that I've ever seen a selenium supplement that I actually liked. Uh, if anyone knows of a good selenocysteine supplement, please let me know about it and I will popularize that and promote it. Short of that, you're probably looking at selenomethionine. Um, I don't like selenomethionine, but it does the trick if you're trying to fix a selenium supplementation. Thank you, Mark, for your question. Angela Larson says, my vitamin D level was 40.6 when I had it tested recently. I'm nursing my 20-month-old and plan to become pregnant again soon. I currently take one teaspoon of green pastures fermented cod liver oil each day in addition to a multivitamin with about 400 IU vitamin D. I live in Texas and I get a fair amount of sun exposure in the summer from gardening. How much vitamin D would you recommend that I take? What do you consider an optimum range for vitamin D in lab results? For the average person, I think the optimal range... Uh, is probably 30 to 40 nanograms per milliliter of 25-OHD. If you are dealing with a lab outside the United States that uses nanomoles per liter, multiply that figure by 2.5. Um, I, you know, honestly, I am not a fan of measuring 25-OHD and determining from that some precise amount to supplement vitamin D. I actually... I'm a strong advocate of better characterizing the pathway if it's low, including measuring parathyroid hormone. If your 25-OHD is 40, uh, that was, mm, I can't, you said it was recently, so I guess that would be the low end because, well, I don't know how recently it was. Anyway, maybe that's your intermediate end. I mean, it would probably be highest at the end of the summer. Um I would be really surprised at that level if your PTH were high, but that would indicate that there's a problem there. I would say you could probably cut back on the vitamin D, um, but you know, you're going to be pregnant. Your last trimester of pregnancy will suck out a lot of that vitamin D. So um, you know, keep an eye on it, but maybe you're in a good position to sort of withstand pregnancy and not need any extra vitamin D. Um, but I definitely, I wouldn't, purposefully bring your vitamin D any higher than that. Um, all of that is subject to, of course, the caveat that specific people with specific problems with probably specific gene mutations might need more vitamin D. What I'm saying to you applies to you, assuming that you are the average person. Uh, none of us are average, but uh, that I should say that you behave like the average 25 OHD response. All right, Angela, thank you for your question. Teresa says, do you do individual consultations? Yeah, um, you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com and right on the menu, you will see consultations. Press there, use the link to schedule it. Only after you read the very short list of terms and conditions that uh, that are there, if you agree to those, then schedule the consultation. I will note that I have some major projects coming up and I'm probably going to drop consultations to once a week for the rest of the summer pretty soon. Um, but uh, yeah, you should be able to find you should be able to find a spot at some point, even if it's not um, right away. Thank you, Teresa. Angela Larson says, I'm a dietitian, and I do speaking engagements where I teach the public about vitamin K2. 
do you feel I see we're at the end of the question so I guess I'll just answer I'll answer questions about anything for the next uh, minute or two I'm a dietitian so and I do speaking engagements where I teach the public about vitamin k2 do you feel that there is any upper limit to safe supplementation how much k2 supplementation do you recommend for an elderly population who has a history of heart disease um I would say it's, you know, unless you have a specific reason, it's better to keep it at food doses. So uh, aged cheese and egg yolks frequently or uh, natto and goose liver weekly and plus lots of vegetables, including green leafy vegetables and uh, other fermented foods. And the average person, I think, is good. If you're dealing with someone... With, who has heart disease, there's good reason to want to further look into that. I personally take one milligram of vitamin K2 from Thorn in the MK4 form because I have a polymorphism in vitamin K oxidoreductase or VCOR, which decreases my recycling of vitamin K and increases, presumably increases my need for it. I think that's why I'm very vulnerable at tooth decay when my diet is suboptimal. Uh, so I have that specific reason, but I actually, I take one drop, which is the, the dose on the label is 15 drops. I take the lowest dose that I can because I really think that one milligram is sort of pushing it in terms of a nutritional intervention. I think when you get higher than that, you're moving into super physiological doses that are pharmacological in nature. If I could sort of pick, if I could sort of make my own vitamin K2 supplement, I would make a daily dose of around four to 500 micrograms with maybe three quarters of that being MK4 and the rest MK7. Uh, that would be my sort of favorite K2 supplement if I were to make one. Uh, there are upcoming tests that should be available but are not yet to look at vitamin K2, vitamin K status in the blood vessel wall. Uh, keep a lookout for me for potential uh, propagation of uh, those tests, if they become available in the United States, probably they will become available in Europe first. Um, but right now, it's possible that I could work together with like a team of clinicians to collect blood samples and send them en masse into the Netherlands for analysis. But what we would really want to do is look at the carboxylation status of matrix glob protein circulating in plasma or serum as a marker of vitamin K2 vitamin K status in the blood vessel wall and use that to assess whether someone's vitamin K is adequate for the purposes of cardiovascular disease. Um, sh thank you, Angela, for your question. Sean Roberts says, what are your current recommendations for those lacking a gallbladder? Um, mine was removed mistakenly when I was 25. Turns out, um, you know, Sean, I, your question is there's, I need to wrap this up, uh, because of the time limit and your question is not quite methylation. So why don't you come back with that question on, uh, the two episodes from now when, when it's asked me about anything. All right. Thank you so much, everybody for your questions. Uh, remember that, uh, first of all, you can, uh, you can click the follow button to get an automatic notification on your phone. Whenever I go live, you can go to uh, chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast and, um, or just chrismasterjohnphd slash blog. In either case, you should easily find your way to the schedule of upcoming Facebook Live events. Please check that schedule. And if you love this, come back for it. Uh, remember that chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast, probably around Monday, we'll have the show notes for this episode 
If you go into your favorite podcast app and search for The Daily Lipid, that is the podcast in which you will find it. You can listen to it then as a downloaded audio on your phone while you're commuting. Thank you so much for everyone for showing up. This was great. Um, you know, your questions make the show. So I really, really, really appreciate and value your participation. Uh, without you, this would uh, not be what it is. Um, so, you know, I, like we're a team, right? It wouldn't be this without me. It wouldn't be this without you. Uh, so I hope that you found this as um, valuable and fun as I did. And I hope that um, I hope that this is really useful to you. Uh, okay, so in the future, yeah, continue to follow me at chrismasterjohnphd.com and on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. And I will see you later. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. If you liked this episode, then come to the next Facebook Live episodes live on Facebook. Just search Chris Masterjohn on Facebook and find my public figure page. Wednesday, June 29th, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Ask me anything about vitamins A, D, and K live. Saturday, July 9th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Ask me anything about health, fitness, and nutrition. It's a free-for-all like the first episode. Remember, these are in Eastern Daylight Time, so adjust your time zone if necessary. If you are enjoying this podcast, please help spread the word by reviewing it in the iTunes Store, by downloading the episodes, sharing the episodes on social media, or subscribing in the iOS app or your favorite podcast app. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, but you can also Find my new website, chrismasterjohnphd.com, and that hosts the blog at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash blog, the podcast at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast, and if you click on podcast, you can easily find this episode by scrolling to it and finding the show notes where I post the time map so you can easily find where you are in specific episodes or look for specific things in those episodes. And it's where I post relevant links to the things that we talk about, the resources that we talk about in the podcast. And you can also use the little trick that I developed by going to thedillylipid.com slash episode number in order to get a shortcut to the specific episode that you're looking for. So for example, this is episode 17 of The Daily Lipid. You go to thedailylipid.com slash 17 and that will redirect you right to the show notes for this episode on chrismasterjohnphd.com. If you want to see me speak in person, come to Ancestral Health Symposium in Boulder, Colorado, August 11th through 13th. And come to Wise Traditions, the annual conference of the Weston A. Price Foundation in Montgomery, Alabama, November 11th through November 14th. All right, that's it. And I will see you guys next episode. Thank you so much.